welcome back to Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Melissa Lima, your trusty North Coast and Organic Field Services rep, here bringing you the last episode of 2020. We've been at this 37 weeks now, and we are so grateful that you all continue to join us week to week for updates and information to help you out on the farm. Well, this is sadly the last time we will talk in 2020, I will share the best news of all. Starting January 9th, you won't have to listen to me flying solo anymore, because in addition to an exciting lineup of guests, we'll also be welcoming back my wonderful co-host Darby Toth, who I know I, and I'm sure all of you, have seriously been missing this month of abridged episodes. Today we bring you a market update with Tiffany LaMandola, our contract economist with Blimling. Anya Radaba joins us to discuss an exciting new survey result rollout by the California Cattle Council, which was developed in partnership between Western United Dairies, California Cattlemen's Association, and the Cattle Council. And we're joined by our ever-popular legal advisor, Anthony Raimondo, and his associate Kevin Piercy of Raimondo & Associates to bring us the latest news for employers on the COVID-19 front. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and without further ado, I will hand it off to Tiffany. Hello, hope everybody had a great week. Um, Well, action in the dairy spot markets this week was uh, maybe not as volatile on paper as previous weeks. Uh, Blocks actually ended up the week unchanged at 161.75. Barrels, we gained three and a quarter cents to 147.50. I think a little work towards convergence um, was still that block barrel spread pretty wide. Um, that got us a little bit closer. Uh, butter gained two and a half cents to 145.50. Continues to you know kind of trade within a pretty narrow range, and nonfat was able to climb back another two and a quarter cents to a dollar fifty. There too, very range bound uh, in the nonfat market. You know, even though the spot cheese market looked pretty quiet, um, behind the scenes action in the class three market, uh, the class three futures market, I should say, um, was really pretty dramatic. Uh, We hit a high for the first quarter on average of 1723 on Tuesday, um, only to end the week what looks to be probably about a dollar lower um, as we close out here today, Friday. We had a lot of, uh, I guess, speculation and discussion around what might or might not be included in some of the food aid uh, packages as part of the stimulus. Um, And, you know, the bottom line is nobody really knows yet for sure. Um, There seems to be money slated towards food aid, but how that will be distributed, what kind of programs, uh, the the timeline on that, uh, we're just still waiting to hear. Uh, early in the week, it, it sounded, you know, some folks thought, thought that uh, another round of food box would in, food boxes would end up in the uh, funding. Um, kind of by midweek, that uh, thought process was changing uh, to, to suggest perhaps not. And so we just saw the class three market sort of whipsawing around um, as folks tried to make heads or tails. Uh, bottom line, we just don't know yet. So stay tuned. Um, What we did get, though, on Thursday was a milk production report for November, really, you know, solidifying the anecdotal reports we got during the month. Uh, Milk production across the U.S. was up 3%. Um, That's the biggest gain we have seen in quite some time. 
Uh, cow numbers increased for the fifth consecutive month, putting us up 62,000 head over November of 2019 levels. That's the largest margin we've seen going back to January of 2018. Um, as we talk with folks across the U.S., it sounds like December will probably be another pretty solid uh, month for milk production. Our model expects uh, we continue with year-over-year -year gains. And so I think the market is grappling with, um, you know, the additional milk and still a lot of questions around demand. So um, thus ending up kind of lower across the board here uh, on this Friday. I uh, hope that... Uh, that all of you have a wonderful holiday as we close out the last podcast for the year. Um, please don't hesitate to reach out if you'd like to chat markets or have any questions. Otherwise, enjoy your family. Have a wonderful holiday. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com slash safety. This week, we'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Western United Dairies CEO, Anya Radabaugh. Thanks for joining us this week before Christmas. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Hey, Anya, we um, had you back today because you have some really good information for us. And I'm really excited about this project, actually, about a partnership um, we've been working on with California Cattlemen's and the California Cattle Council related to just how we're messaging things in the capital and how our political strategy is working. So can you give us a little heads up about some exciting stuff that's been happening? Excellent. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. I think that this one I'm really pumped about. It really, it definitely tickles me uh, where I like to laugh. It's, um, it's definitely a piece of good news, I think, for folks that are looking to the future. And in this COVID-related world, we thought on the government affairs side that we would slow down a little bit and actually talk to policymakers about what they thought about beef and dairy. And so we developed this exhaustive policymakers opinion survey. And that sounds pretty mundane, but it was a series of questions that Western United Dairy's government affairs team and California Cattlemen's Affairs teams through funding from the California Cattle Council, we developed a series of questions where we asked regulators, lawmakers, and members of the executive branch in California what they thought about environmental impacts to beef and dairy, about what kind of stewards of the land we were. And uh, we also asked them about what they thought about how we handled our employees, the health and safety of our workplace. Uh, we asked them detailed questions about nutrition and how they felt nutrition played a role in the plates of the school lunch program. And you have to be open to the feedback. We were really looking for things that maybe we were messaging as an industry that may or may not be resonating the way we want. And boy, did we get them. Mm -hmm. um, we had a tremendous amount of participation. It was not overly easy during the election cycle to get a lot of participation, but notable participants included um, heads of CDFA, Natural Resources Agency, the state EPA, we had a wonderful participation from the Office of Planning and Research. And for people that don't know what OPR is, OPR essentially oversees CEQA implementation and CEQA requirements in California. And so the way they view land acquisition and development, um, the way they do land use planning, uh, OPR was a really critical part of it. We also tapped key legislative members, uh, mostly committee chairs uh, throughout the Senate and the Assembly. 
um, including from the offices of the pro tem and the speaker. So trying to find and engaging some of the most influential and respected policymakers here in California, we were able to find, um, I think, a really wonderful uh, balance of how people think about beef and dairy. Awesome. I am excited to hear what some of the key takeaways um, and the key feedback were that, that Ruiz received. Well, after we got through some of the initial concern, there was a lot of concern from people that we were going to take this information and use it against them. And that was a tremendous bridge that our hired guns, um, our hired consultants had to, had to, you know, they had to bridge that gap. But at the end of the day, after we convinced folks that everything was going to be confidential, uh, the responses to the survey project were very positive. Um, although some of the engagement and the conversation that was had and the responses weren't to our favor, it was a really smart idea, according to most of those surveyed, that we engaged folks in the legislature and the administration, because it helps everybody at the end of the day when we're going to argue a legislative policy solution, um, you know, focus on one direction or the other. And so taking um, some recommendations, I think I'll start with some of the respondents information about environment and climate change. And that brings up a concept of um, something called California's, um, that California is very bullish about its leadership in the climate change arena. Um, they believe very strongly in something called California exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. That is a pervasive point of view among policymakers because they believe that California is much better than other states. And most importantly, that we don't shy away from acknowledging and addressing impacts. And that's something that they feel these, and again, these are folks that are either elected to run policy or they've been appointed to run policy. So we may disagree with this statement as a whole, but what they think is, is the driving factor in how we live or die here in California. Right. So they think that um, acknowledging environmental impacts is really important. But overwhelmingly, 74% of those polled said it was important or very important for policy and regulations to preserve the beef and dairy industry. And the positive reaction when we gave, so we listed several statements, and one of the most positive reactions we got, 78% positive, was a statement that saying that U.S. cattle industry is the most efficient, producing 20% of the world's beef and 7% of the world's uh, cattle so that the footprint of beef and dairy is much less than those of other countries. So talking about California specifically, one of the comments that was a little uncomfortable was that other states doing beef and dairy production would be much worse. And that was a broad assumption. I like that assumption because I happen to believe that that's true, but working in a national dairy community that works internationally to export products Right. It was kind of a balance of, okay, California exceptionalism versus <laughs> California snobbery. Yeah. But I think that it really it gives us and our policy teams and our government affairs teams, I think, a massive leg up because one of the other comments that came out of this, on uh, this is very, very helpful and hopefully encouraging to our members, is that if we're consumers, but pushing production out of state, we're not helping the issue. And I thought that for, um, I, I don't want to say uninformed bureaucrat, but someone who's not cutting paychecks for a living, for someone to say that was really insightful. Definitely. And then if we go into some of 
the more uncomfortable places, particularly around the conversation around environment, um, there were, I think, broad agreements that California's cattle and dairy industry are working to reduce GHGs. But there was a lot of disagreement about whether or not the word sustainable meant what we think it means. And whenever we added the word sustainable into these questions, the respondents would come back neutral as opposed to having a positive opinion. And I'm not quite sure what that means just yet. I do know that it at least on the surface, it means that engaging with them directly as a farmer is really, really important because I think the neutrality of the word sustainability is overuse of the term. And it's also people responding to the messenger. Do they believe that term? And so that part of it is, I think, one of the more important aspects of what we took away on the environmental piece. Um, it is very clear that innovation in the dairy and beef sector is so important to these policymakers and that they want uh, California's livestock industry to keep leading. And um, of course, my comment, if I was sitting across from them, it's hard to lead when we're bleeding. Um, and so the, the general conversation as we tested reactions, positive and negative, is that it kind of ties into the mindset that California does it better than anywhere else. Executive policymakers in different branches of appointed government believe that research institutions like UC Davis, world-class universities are better at messaging these conversations. The legislators believed that farmers and ranchers are better at adequately messaging these conversations. And so I remain very engaged in that. And I think it's positive to know that that's what they think. So as we evolve, they're ready to evolve with us, but it, it is a very it's, it's an interesting, it was eye-opening discussion about sustainability and in the environment. And then if we look further at some of the other areas that the survey work covered, we looked at um, advocacy on jobs and animal welfare issues. And I think that overwhelmingly what we discovered in our survey work was that information on working conditions needs to be shared more frequently. Mm -hmm. um, there is a bit of a black hole on how people are reacting to both animal welfare and working conditions. And I'll break those out. They were viewed, our jobs in general, because they are year-round labor, were viewed 51% as good or very good when asked about the perception of working conditions on California's cattle and dairy, dairy industries. But the conversation dropped off a little bit when people wanted to understand that good jobs are cattle jobs. Like when you made those two um, inferences, there seemed to be a gap and a, and a predisposition to hesitation. So the positive reaction side of the scale shows us that 73% of those polled felt that the cattle and dairy industries enjoy the highest wage and job satisfaction in California's agricultural sector. Um, but we need to figure out how to message that because there were continued questions in the comment area that suggest they want more information on that. If we should, when we switch topics to animal welfare, 
Um, I'll read you some percentages and then give you some feedback about what the legislators and the policymakers thought. When asked about describing conditions for cattle, 47% um, polled said that there were good or excellent conditions on dairy farms and almost the exact number for cattle ranches. Um, and then some of the comments, and when we asked people to, to talk about that, were, you know, I'm concerned about impacts. I'm concerned about animal welfare. There are likely practices I wouldn't approve of, which I thought was an interesting comment. Mm -hmm. um, but that did not translate into vegan activism within policymakers. And what I mean is, as a result of this survey, we see very clearly that people are concerned, but it doesn't impact their meat eating and dairy consumption. On average of those polled, 65% said they eat beef daily and 83% of them say they consume dairy daily. Wow. And those are remarkable conversational statistics when talking with lawmakers we all respect the animal welfare piece of it. I think that I know now from this survey results that we have to do a better job talking about it. We have to be open and they're waiting for the information. So if I go further into the perception of the two industries, there is, and this is where I'm gonna get into some uncomfortable areas that I think our producers should know and our farmers should be very cognizant of. There is a perception among policymakers, a common view is that there are two types of beef and dairy producers with the primary differentiator being size. Oh. <laughs> the size conversation came up over and over and over again in almost every juxtapositioned policy question. And where animals are perceived to be confined or not to free or graze roamly as they should, there was a conversation about welfare there. Um, conversely, smaller operations where cows are pasture raised or grass fed had a very positive perception among those surveys. And we found the same thing to be um, on the perception of the beef side. So there is, again, keep in mind those consumption statistics. There are a lot of um, concerns about large scale, they called it industrial feedlot. This isn't overly new to us, but it was, I think, really sharp and hard to hear that they were differentiating by size. Yeah. Um, and, all, and actually associated that with animal welfare concerns. Yeah. And so that's where, yeah. And so we really have to do a better job, um, I think, going back to the value of the messenger. Um, when you think about, and I'll go through this at the end, how much the legislation, the legislators believed from farmers that this was in our own interest. Um, I think we have to talk about animal welfare a lot more openly. I think that's, that's really interesting takeaway. And I think sometimes I, I could kind of envision hearing, maybe not those words exactly, but you kind of hear that in some inferences we've heard made from policymakers and different folks over the years. So it's interesting to know that and know where we can go with that messaging and how we can better talk about certain areas of the dairy that might change some minds. Well, and then when you take it to the next level, which is actually about random observations throughout the survey work, when we combine looking at 
the environmental concerns and impacts and, and statements around sustainability, and you juxtaposition that with animal health and welfare and employee working conditions. Sure. What was, you, you know, the uninformed perceptions are very common and respondents are admittedly unaware. So they ask questions that, you know, I, I'm not trying to make people laugh, but I will give you some of the questions and some of the Q&A that occurred. They asked, uh, as a result of the CAFO and the large livestock conversation, are we eating more weird parts of the cow? Are we making fatter cows? Are we using artificial means to reach efficiency outcomes? And that was really critical for me to know yeah. when we asked whether or not the statement about more cows in India and Mexico being needed to compensate for the same one cow here in California, the immediate reaction was one of horror, not celebration. They said, I want to know if you guys are using hormones to achieve those efficiency results. Is it artificial that we're using, that we're getting those efficiency outcomes? And so talking about our carbon footprint in terms of efficiency, and we can't bag on these folks too much because they don't know anything about how we've improved our genetics and improved our feed rations and all that stuff, because we don't really talk about it. Those are just, you know, industry trade secrets. So it's just, but we have to be really, really cautious when we as an industry are messaging certain points of view without doing focus work like this, because it clearly means something completely different to people that write laws and regulations. Absolutely. So basically what it boils down to is a lot of our findings are, I, and I, I I'm don't, I'm not trying to take words or put words in your mouth here, but <laughs> we're finding that a lot of our key messaging is sort of counter to what we're actually trying to achieve. So I, I would say moving forward, it gives us such an opportunity to really decide how we're messaging certain things to certain people that we're working with and who's messaging those things, whether it's the UC Davis professionals that we talked about, or we're bringing a farmer in to meet with his legislator. That you, you hit the nail on the head. I think that we mean well, but unless we know our audience better, what we're saying means nothing. In fact, could be counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, and that was a big recommendation that we've made as a, you know to the California Cattle Council and to our industry leaders here is that you know kicking dirt with farmers is clearly a valuable experience and obviously with covid and and you know trying to be safer those opportunities have not presented themselves in 2020 but being able to have more advocacy and I know farmers are busy really came through to me on this um and we'll get to some of the in-person survey groups here in just a minute. Um, but there's a significant value in that experience because government feels that farmers and ranchers are the best messengers to them. And just to summarize this piece of it, um, policymakers are listening, but the information and the source of that information matters. Yeah. And just to briefly go through the trusted messengers Higher education was as seen by 99% of those polled as being one of the best, highly trusted and unbiased. Medical associations, individual operators, um, which would include farmers, were the number two lead interest groups in that category. Um, environmental groups are trusted messengers to about 74% of those polled, which is not a number to be ignored. That's 
you know, right up there with us. Um, but the last one and the lowest one on the rung were the animal welfare groups. They are not trusted as part, 65% of those surveys said that um, they, they, their bias was too great. And I thought that was interesting because we intentionally tried to cherry pick lawmakers that we thought would give us harsher truths. And they did not feel that the level of um, education and, and information they were getting from those animal rights groups was valuable. So site tours of ranches and farms really rose to the top of a takeaway that I, I would like to, if anybody in our membership wants to start volunteering regularly, I know I go to the same four or five guys every year. Um, be proud of who you are. They want to hear from you. People respect folks who do this work for a living. It's important for them to speak honestly about why and what they, you know, do in this work. Um, and I think that um, some of the other comments that came in, people in cities don't know how much these workers care about their animals. That's a direct quote. Um, you know, very passionate about animal welfare. This is a dairy farmer they were talking about. It made sense from an ethical and economic perspective, the perspective, the way he explained it. So these visits, I mean, again, really stood out to me as being some important things. Um, just to wrap this part of it up, um, policymakers want livestock industry partners on environmental welfare and workforce issues. They are desperately seeking partnerships from us. They want us to come down out of our farms and work on solutions together. That has to do with water quality. Western was critical in doing um, you know, water quality legislation a few years back, but that was a very rare example of reaching across the aisle and finding environmental groups to partner with. So 83% of those surveyed said that it was important or very important to engage with cattle and dairy directly when making policy decisions. So there's hope yeah. um, and it, it is it's great. And 82% of the policymakers said they should partner with industry representatives to identify those issues and develop solutions. So government advocacy, government engagement, um, working with organizations like Calvary Cattlemen's and Western United Dairies who have solid government affairs teams thinking about how that moves forward, I think is a great vision for 2021. So then another aspect of uh, what we're calling phase three of a resilience plan, you may recall that Western did a lot of engagement towards the beginning of spring when we had the initial shutdowns where the press was really engaged in the milk dumping story. We were talking about supply chain issues. And so we've carried that PR all the way through the year and working with um, some great consultants, again, with wonderful funding coming from the California Cattle Council, we were able to develop um, a different set of campaigns that talked and focused on peer review groups. So what we did is we actually worked out messaging metrics and we tested and focused that in person. Well, excuse me, it was like over Zoom meetings. <laughs> um, we, we separated out millennials, Gen Xers, Gen Y, um, boomers. We had a variety <laughs> of different employments, different ethnic and, and diversity backgrounds. And we really tried to figure out how and when we could get some of the engagements. And so essentially what we did in the final phase of the year for the resilience campaign, as we looked at, again, looking and sitting down with these focus groups um, and talking about messaging. And so we focused messages like policy threats equal higher taxes. We focused on, um, we looked a lot at this campaign called It's a Lot. 
And we, we messaged different perceptions with these personal focus groups about what they thought about beef and dairy. Um, and I think that if I had to summarize, because again, if you want to see the full presentation of what these metrics are, you can go to the California Cattle Council website. They should be up by now. Well, but what we yeah, what we found out is that each of these sectors generally had a very positive view of things like value and nutrition of beef and dairy. They had a very negative point of view of large CAFO feedlots particularly one that's off I-5 that they see and smell every day. Um, and they do not trust messaging that is convoluted or layered to what we're trying to do. So one of the comments was, if you got steak, just sell me a steak. Don't try to sell me a sustainable steak. I want the steak. <laughs> and we trust you. The best approach <laughs> And there was a lot of conversation and that's why the, that's why focus groups are so valuable because you can have an off the cuff conversation and learn a lot from how people perceive what you're doing. And so running these campaigns, it was all, these were all kind of like theoretical campaigns. We would say, well, what if, you know, the dairy industry ran a campaign about taxes or what if the beef industry ran a campaign about, you know, the threat of protecting future operations and so we would have conversations with people about what they thought about that, what their general impressions were. And I thought that contrary to what, you know, and I, this is preliminary, but contrary to what a lot of our messaging within the checkoff realm has been, which is that people and customers want net zero, they want conversations around sustainability. These groups kind of said me, they, 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 it's not that they didn't care about that. We were just not the most trusted messengers of that information. It was similar if you lay that over the policymaker survey that we did at the same time, you can kind of see that message coming through. Just tell me what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you know how you're efficient. And, and they honestly trusted us to take care of the animals in a way that produced a good product. So those pieces were um, all going on at the same time, and it was a lot. Uh, it was a lot of creative work, but we were able to reach a tremendous amount of impressions and people. Um, in Los Angeles, a lot of these campaign metrics and, the, and the, most of the focus groups were actually down in Los Angeles, but we were pulling Zoom meetings together from all over the state. Um, but most of the participation we had was actually in LA. And so it's, it's really neat to see the engagement and the impressions that came out from some of these campaigns. And again, just paints a bigger picture of if we are to do PR and messaging in the industry, and if we do need to fight legislation, what are the best messages we need to right. do that? And our language is not the language we want to use. We want to use their language. So this was a huge project, and I'm really proud of all the work the California Cattle Council put into it. Um, the work that the consultant teams, they must have spent 150 hours just writing these questions. Um, Billy with Cattlemen's and I, I, like, I don't ever really want to have to go through another survey again is it just the way we asked the questions was heavily scrutinized. And I appreciate that. I know I can see the work product now. And I think that the more type of investments we can make as an industry into these, into these efforts, um, the better we're going to be able to talk to our consumers. Awesome. Well, I so appreciate the update on you. And I know our listeners will too. This stuff is fascinating and I can't wait to dig into it um, even more. And We'll hear you at a WED kitchen table meeting talking a little bit more about this stuff after 
the holidays. So um, we'll link all of that in our bio, but thanks so much for joining us today and bringing us this good and super informational news. Well, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and I hope everyone has a wonderful new year. Uh, you can look for more of this messaging to really take shape in the early spring of 2021. Awesome. Thanks, Anya. Merry Christmas. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with a relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Welcome back to the podcast, our good friend and partner in the dairy industry work, Tony Ramundo or Anthony Ramundo of Ramundo and Associates. Tony, you brought a special guest with you to the podcast today. Can you please introduce your guest? Yeah, I have with me Kevin Piercy, who's one of my associate attorneys here at the office. Uh, Kevin has been really focused on being on top of the uh, COVID-19 situation um, since the whole thing started in you know February, March, when we started seeing legal changes come up. So Kevin's been watching not only the, the ongoing changes, but monitoring what the law is and what the obligation is and helping a lot of our clients, both in the, in the dairy industry and elsewhere, in a lot of these COVID questions that come up, you know, when employees test positive or somebody in their household tests positive or a doctor tells them not to go to work or the various things that come up in terms of managing that situation, as well as dealing with the various time off and leave requirements. Um, so I thought it would be great to have Kevin here to be able to talk a little bit about what's going on with COVID and what the legal landscape looks like right now. Well, we sure appreciate both of you taking the time today to bring some updates to our producers. We've tried to touch on this subject sparingly enough that producers aren't getting too tired of it, but just bringing them updates when necessary. And it seems these days that things change so rapidly that we're having you guys back every couple of weeks. But thank you so much for always taking the time to, to give our members the most recent updates. We're happy to do it. And just a quick reminder for your members, they can sign up for our email blast system through our website, which is www.romandoassociates.com, or they can call us here at the office at 559-432-3000. And we do regular email updates on a variety of subjects, uh, including COVID. Every time anything changes with COVID, Kevin jumps on it right away to be able to get it out through the email. And that's a great way for folks to stay up to date as well. Awesome. And I know I sure appreciate those updates. So we'll let you take it away, Kevin and Tony, just with some, uh, some pertinent updates. And we'll kind of do a little back and forth with maybe some scenarios that have come up. I poor Kevin, I've been calling him a lot this week. So, so Kevin, why don't you share the, what, what you think is kind of the latest and greatest on COVID? Well, the most recent update that came through this week was the, uh, a change to what to do with asymptomatic employees um, and when they can return to work. And uh, the change came down uh, that it used to be 14 days after your exposure, if you're asymptomatic, is, is the first time that where you can come back to work. However, they've recently changed it to uh, be more compliance with, uh, sorry, the, the CDPH changed it to be more compliance with the CDC's uh, most recent updated guidelines. And in fact, it's now reduced to 10 days. Uh, so employees who have remained asymptomatic the entire time since their exposure, they are permitted to return back to work after the 10th day. Uh, on, however, if they do come back, they have to uh, keep 
uh, mask on and they have to maintain the social distancing and they have to um, be monitoring their, their symptoms for the next several days. And after day 14, since their exposure, they can start relaxing and, and kind of returning back to the normal so long as it's in compliance with uh, Cal OSHA requirements and all the other, other requirements uh, in their local jurisdiction and uh, they can move on. But during, those, during that time period, if that employee does develop symptoms, they immediately have to be sent home. And then you start up the, uh, the symptomatic uh, return to work, which is 10 days after uh, your symptoms start up, um, at least 24 hours have passed since your, uh, since your last uh, fever that you didn't use with uh, fever-reducing medications. And also that your, uh, your symptoms have significantly improved. And so that's, that's the, the large update that's happened. Uh, before that, we also had a, a more recent update with, the, um, with Cal OSHA's emergency regulations. Uh, they recently passed the beginning of the month and that now requires that all employees within a building um, have to wear a mask at all times, unless they're in a room by themselves, if they have a, uh, a medical or mental health condition uh, or disability that prevents them from doing that, or a few other, uh, a few other exceptions to that policy. If, uh, if your employees aren't going to wear a mask during that time uh, because of a mental health or, or, uh, or a medical disability or condition, uh, they are permitted to wear a face shield. Um, it is supposed to also have a drape, a cloth drape of some sort. So, uh, you know, you're not breathing any potentially infectious air around. But if your employee comes to you and says that they can't do that because of their, um, their medical condition or mental health condition or disability, then the employer is going to be faced with having to um, provide testing for that employee every week. Um, until until either those restrictions are, are lifted or until that employee is able to uh, start wearing the mask or face covering. And now all that testing, of course, is going to be on the clock and is going to be on the employer's dime. Okay, Kevin, and just to be clear, um, a medical or mental health condition can't just pop up. It's something that should be documented by your employee's physician so that we know that this is a legitimate reason not to wear a mask. Is that correct? Well, that's where it kind of gets tricky because then you start looking into the employee's history and, and really it's where we could have some potential HIPAA, um, okay. uh, that's HIPAA territory. Now, if, if they do get a, um, if they can bring a doctor's note in, I mean, it doesn't need to have a, a longstanding history of this. They can bring in a doctor's note or, or something that says, that, hey, this is my condition. Um, and, and then you're just gonna have to uh, work with that. Perfect. Yeah, no, I would I would say this is covered uh, by general disability discrimination law. And, and the way that it works, when an employee requests any sort of accommodation, which is really what we're talking about here with a workplace, workplace requirement like a mask or a face shield, what they're asking for is an accommodation based upon a disability, whether it's a mental health disability or a physical health disability. So I would defer back to our general disability discrimination laws. We are required or we are entitled as employers to certain medical documentation of a disability. Okay. What you're not entitled to, as Kevin noted, is you're not entitled to their medical records and you're not entitled to necessarily the diagnostic information. What you're entitled to is a statement from their provider as to what the accommodation is that is needed, the reason why the accommodation is needed, and 
in, in general terms, it probably wouldn't apply in this one, but the duration that that accommodation will be needed for. Okay. So there are specific uh, Department of Fair Employment and Housing uh, regulations that cover um, disability discrimination and requests for medical information. We have some form letters here that we use uh, if an employee is having trouble getting that, that uh, information from their doctor that we can uh, provide to an uh, employer so that they can request the information directly from the physician. And it references the, the applicable regulations and it has a list of the, the information that we're actually entitled to. You know, historically in other settings, we would get situations where a doctor would write a note for an employee that just says, you know, Jose needs to be off work for the next 10 days. Okay. Well, you're entitled to more than just that, even though you're not necessarily entitled to Jose's diagnostic right. and detailed private medical information. So walking that line can be a little bit tricky. That's one of those things I would encourage your members to call us about. Okay. If, they're, if they've got somebody that claims a disability that excuses them from the mask wearing requirement, let us know because it's a very fact specific situation. And we're happy to walk them through what those regulations entitle them to get. And if they need it, we can help them put a letter together where they can request that information from the employee's doctor, or, or sometimes we'll give the, have the employer give the letter to the employee and say, hey, take this to your doctor and tell him this is what we need. Perfect. Yeah, that's good. I just know we've had a couple questions recently, you know, employees claiming that they have a condition and then it's hard to get that documentation. So we definitely will refer those questions to you guys or, you know, explain what the, what the options are and what the employers are titled to. That's a, that's a good answer. Yeah, the letter is often very helpful because it does tell the doctor, hey, these regulations exist and this is what we're entitled to. And that kind of wakes the doctor up. Well, okay, I got to cooperate with this. Perfect. Perfect. Another question that's come up quite a bit, and I believe this came up um, when Kevin joined us on the webinar a couple of weeks ago. What is considered indoor and outdoor? So on dairies, we often have barns that are tall, open-sided barns with a roof. Is that considered an indoor area? Sometimes employees will be working, you know, scraping manure or doing some sort of more rigorous work in those type of settings, and maybe the mask kind of inhibits their ability to, to catch their breath. So would that be appropriate if they're social distance to have their mask off? It's an interesting question. I mean, Kevin, I'm not sure that the the, the COVID stuff really really answers that one. Not there's not a lot of information on that. Okay. Um, one of the things that we can point to, uh, sort of as a guideline on that, is uh, California Department of Public Health did is, uh, issue out a memorandum on outdoor uh, for dining. Now that's it's specifically looking at um, at like dining type of situations. So in that case, uh, it is a uh, two wall, if it's, if it's got three walls and one, uh, like a soft wall or, you know, opening kind of situation, then it's technically, they don't consider that to be outdoor. They consider that to be indoor. Okay. But if it is two walls that are adjacent to each, you know, that are abutting to each other, then, uh, that is partially outdoor. Uh, and what they really want to have is, um, you know, two walls and, you know, the opposites on opposite sides, and then the other two walls are going to be open. So that way there can be continuous flow of air. And that's what they that's what they, they recommend for um, you know in, in the restaurant setting. Now, as far as that com, you know goes towards any other type of setting, there's unfortunately a uh, a dearth of information. So uh, we we kind of uh, we can take that as guidance, but um, there's not a lot there. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of variants that I've seen in different kind of barns. You know, some are a lot more open than others. So I think there's a certain common sense element to this. You know, if for you're sure. If your barn is truly enclosed and indoors, you should probably treat it as an indoor workspace. 
you know, if it's more open, like some of our breezeways are, or some, I mean, I've seen some, some barns that really have a, a complete free flowing of air. Um, you know, I think some amount of a judgment call of what do you think is really defensible? And you got to imagine a person who's not involved in farming. And if you ask them, you know, would you consider this indoors or outdoors? The interesting part of this is that from an OSHA perspective, you know, OSHA has considered dairy barns for many years to be outdoor workplaces. Okay. And the reason why is because they took an expansive view of the heat stress regulations. So they treated a lot of our milk barns that I would, if I looked at it, I would tell you that's indoors. OSHA would still treat that as an outdoor workplace because they wanted to apply the heat stress regulation. Okay. Over the years, that's kind of dropped away because the heat stress regulation was later on expanded to include both indoor and outdoor settings. So the distinction is less important in that area. So I think there is some wiggle room there to be able to, to argue that um, a barn is, is an outdoor setting. But again, I would I would defer back to basic common sense. You know, if if it's got four walls and it's fully enclosed, you should probably treat it as indoor. If it's a more open area with a free flow of air, you've got fans that are running that are keeping that air moving. You're probably safer treating that as an outdoor workspace. Like I said, imagine showing a photograph of it to a layperson and saying, do you think this is indoors or outdoors? Perfect. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. One thing um, to touch back a little bit on the OSHA regulations, the emergency regulation that was issued, um, what should producers expect from that? Is there any wiggle room? It sounds like maybe OSHA is not doing a lot of enforcement until those regulations can be reviewed, but I think our advice to producers has been to the best of your ability to comply with those regulations until we get more guidance. Does that sound yeah we haven't we haven't seen uh, aggressive enforcement yet um but my expectation is that we will see at least some level of enforcement now are they going to target dairies i don't know um certainly i think you're going to see them target some large employers if i had to guess your first target employers are going to be some of the food processing that we've seen, where we've seen some outbreaks occur, like we had the Foster Farms uh, situation, um, where you have you know, some of these indoor processing settings where we have large numbers of workers that are in a truly indoor setting. I think that's probably going to be their first priority. If I was in manufacturing, I'd be very worried that I was going to get inspected. I think some of those settings where you have hundreds of workers working in fairly close quarters, um, are more likely to see initial investigations. Where I worry more for dairies, at least in the short term, is where you have sort of an OSHA investigator who stops in randomly, maybe they're looking for whatever they can find, and they stumble on a situation that they see that doesn't comply. So I certainly would encourage caution, and I would, I would approach it from the perspective of, well, they're not looking at us, I'm not worried about this. I think the advice you're giving to do your best to comply um, is probably the best thing you can do at this point. And, and it sounds silly, but some of the visible things are very helpful. You know, having boxes of masks around that people, you know, that like, you know, with little dispensers that people can grab a mask if they want one. Having bottles of hand sanitizer around, you know, where people can do the little pump thing like you see the stores have. Yeah. I think those are great proactive measures that if somebody shows up and starts poking around, they're going to see that stuff. And then at least you can make the argument that you're doing your best to comply. I think people that aren't doing anything at all, you know, if an ocean investigator shows up and nobody's wearing a mask and there's no hand sanitizer everywhere and it's, you know, it looks like business as usual from the pre-COVID days, I think that's where they're going to be more inclined to be more aggressive. Uh, but I don't think, I think in, in the first wave of enforcement, 
I would expect larger workplaces with many workers in indoor settings are going to be their first target um, before, you know, most of our dairies don't have large numbers of employees, in particular, large numbers of employees indoors. So I think that, that we're a less appealing target than some of those manufacturing, food processing, garment production, you know, some of those types of settings where you have lots and lots of workers inside in close quarters are gonna be their first, their first um, avenue of attack. But, you know, you don't take that as you're not gonna get inspected and you're not gonna get cited because, you know, it doesn't make anybody feel good when none of your neighbors get cited, but you do, it doesn't help you. Definitely. And, and just a reminder to producers, it's more than just OSHA that we're worried about. This is a specific emergency regulation put out by OSHA, but we have had some instances in different counties where because multiple families live in different homes at the same address and maybe many people at one address get sick, the county health officials will come out and do some investigation. So we want to make sure that we're following all the rules in the interest of the safety of our employees and preventing those kinds of heartburn situations from happening. Yeah, I think we have to worry about almost any government agency representative, whether it's, you know, county health inspectors who get a report of an exposure and they come out to talk to employees, you know, and then they see something that they don't think is right, you know, they can yeah. cause a problem for you. I've even had a couple of dairies tell me that they've had milk inspectors who have raised issues about, um, you know, COVID protocols, even though it's really not within their realm at all. Right. Um, these jurisdictional lines are getting blurred now with some of the frenzy that's going on. Yeah, one of the things to keep in mind about this whole thing is that when Kalosha did put out those emergency regulations, they did say uh, that they, I mean, they did acknowledge that these were going to be, um, these, these were, you know, a lot on top of what they were already requiring, that this was all brand new, they were in flux, and that they were, they had already put out that they were going to take into consideration the employer's good faith effort to complete fly with this, um, especially with the, the requirement to have a new one of their COVID-19 plans. And so with that in mind, it, it, behooves, it behooves everyone to begin to try to actually uh, become in compliance, even if even if right now what you do to, to uh, you know, be in compliance is not going to be enough with, you know, some upcoming changes that may, may arise, they're, they're still going to take that into consideration. And if we don't do anything, then it's going to be an entire world of hurt, you know, versus, you know, then, okay, well, you know, we've at least mitigated because we tried to be in compliance with the rules last week, even though it changed, you know, Monday and Wednesday and Friday of this week, you know, and so they'll at least take that into consideration. And, and we've been, we've got, uh, we've developed here, um, largely under Kevin, um, some COVID protocols and folks and, and things that folks can use. And Kevin's actually working now on developing some forms that can be used to help employees with the return to work process, for example, if they're having difficulty getting cooperation from their doctor, where we can get some certification from them in the form of an affidavit to help them get back to work. So as people are facing uh, you know, individual challenges in terms of the compliance side of it or dealing with situations involving individual workers, you know, one of the things we're always very sensitive to is the fact that it's very hard on a dairy when they're, when they're operating shorthanded. So uh, we've got some tools to help and we'll continue to be creative um, with developing those tools, but we can't help if we don't know about it. So we, we do want to encourage folks to reach out to us if they need help. Absolutely. And those tools have been super helpful so far, and we look forward to working with you guys on some more. I think that's the biggest question we get is sometimes just 
what do I need to do? What boxes should I check? And having those things available has really helped answer that question for a lot of producers. I would also, just a reminder, we are gonna be closed at the office for a couple of weeks here at Western United Dairies, but we do offer PPE materials. So if a dairy is having trouble securing that, let us know, we'll get it shipped out to you. We can get you masks, sanitizer, and even um, I've ordered for quite a few dairies, those nice radar thermometers, so that if you don't have one of those at your time clock, when folks are checking in to check their temperature, we can we can get that started for you. Just feel free to call us or email us throughout the holidays. And um, we wanna make sure everybody's staying safe and that safe you know, from the virus that's going around, but also safe from all the eyes that are curious about what's happening on your dairy. All the government that's going around. Yes, <laughs> there seems to be two pandemics, maybe more. No, we really appreciate you guys taking the time today. Any other updates you'd like to give our members or anything, maybe a, a couple takeaways that you think are most important the next few weeks? I think the biggest thing is not being afraid to ask questions and, and reach out for help. You know, keep in mind that things are changing very, very rapidly all the time. Um, I don't know, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I don't know that I've ever seen a situation where we've th seen things that are changing so quickly and so rapidly. Um, I'm getting calls from clients, not just in dairy, but across all of agriculture about issues that are coming up every day. And they can vary county by county and local area by local area, and sometimes individual government inspector from individual government inspector. Um, the mo biggest thing I would I would encourage uh, farmers to do is not be afraid to reach out and ask for help. And um, they do. I want to remind everybody that they do get some free consultation with us um, as part of their Western United membership. And we encourage you guys to take care of it. And I promise you, uh, take advantage of that. And I promise you, I'm not watching the clock on that. I don't want you guys to be afraid to reach out to us because you're afraid of what it's going to cost you. I've never sent any farmer or anybody else a bill that they didn't know was coming. And if you guys need help in a given situation, we're happy to do that under your free consultation. And if it's something that's going to cost you more, we'll let you know that it, you know, what it's going to cost you. And then you can decide whether or not you want to take us up on that. Um, but the most important thing is please don't be afraid to reach out. Don't, there's no shame in thinking that you can't necessarily navigate all this on your own. It's a, it's a crazy time that we're in and there is help for you. Yes, absolutely. And I can vouch for the fact that you guys have been so giving of your time and energy for our producers over the years. And we just can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And really every situation is unique, whether you think it is or not, every dairy situation, whether you have an employee that thinks they might be sick or that is tested positive or just family members that have Everything is different, so please, please ask. A lot of our workers do travel for the holidays, so you may have some issues with folks who travel who are going to see family, and there may be questions about um, you know, whether or not they're able to work. Uh, we got a number of those questions, um, both around Easter and as well as around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us if those things come up, and we can help, nav help you navigate those individual scenarios. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, you guys. Have a great holiday, and We'll see you back in January. We'll probably be banging down the door with questions. <laughs> Got my cell phone number. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Thank you all so much for joining us this week and these last nine months. Darby and I went out on a limb last spring in an effort to reach our members during one of the most uncertain times in memory for not only this industry, but for the entire world. We've been so blessed with wonderful listener support, amazing and interesting guests, and gracious advertisers this year, and we have learned so much. 
This year hasn't been easy for anyone, but those challenges have given us the opportunity to really appreciate the small joys it has brought, and working with all of our guests, contributors, and listeners certainly tops that list. We know the holidays look very different for many of us this year, and while they may not be ideal, we hope you can find the small joys in this season. We wish you a very Merry Christmas and a healthy start to 2021. Thanks again to today's contributors, Tiffany LaMandola, Anya Radaba, Anthony Ramundo, and Kevin Piercy. We would love your input on our content going into the new year. For comments, questions, and content requests, please email us at info at wudairies.com, M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com, or D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. We also encourage your feedback by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite listening platform. Merry Christmas, everyone. Stay healthy, and we look forward to seeing and hearing you in 2021. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies' generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.